Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Robert Simonson, a, a writer of spirits and wine and theater and culture, welcome to the show today, sir. Uh, thanks. Happy to be here. Um, so you came from a theater family. Family was a lot of different drama. That's right. Um, I like to say that we're probably the most prominent theater family in Wisconsin. <laughs> um, my uh, brother's a director and writer. My Sister's a costume designer. Her husband is a theater administrator. My brother just married an actress. Um, and I, I guess I was the black sheep. I became a theater critic. And and was that just so that you could, like, criticize your own family? Like, have free reign to be like, no, you're doing it all wrong. Well, at the time, I knew that I wanted to be a writer. And I liked theater. But in retrospect, I sort of realized that I started doing that just as a way to uh, stay in the family business. You know, I mean, because if you go to my house, pretty much people talk about theater 90% of the time. And if you're not doing theater or seeing theater, you're not part of the conversation. Uh, so I don't want to say that I, I don't like theater. I do like theater. But if I hadn't come from that family, I probably would have started out my writing career, my journalism career, writing about something else. So it was like a doll's house where you went back and you're like, no more macaroons for me. I am not talking theater to you people anymore. Uh, something like that. I think, you know, my family probably was surprised when I switched focuses. You know, if if I could make a meager living writing about theater, why wouldn't I do that? <laughs> right, right. You know, for right. the rest of my life, because everyone knows how, how respected drama critics are and, and how much, what big salaries they earn. <laughs> so, I mean, you went to college and then you were a drama critic. And what was the downside of being a drama critic? I mean, what didn't excite you about that career? Uh, well... A drama critic, you know, is a great job, and nobody should complain about it. You get to go to the theater, you get free tickets, although that's the only free thing that you get. Um, but like anything, it becomes a job. I think, I think everything, no matter how passionate you are about it, it there are aspects of it that are job-like. And if you're a theater critic, if you're a theater writer, you're going to the theater uh, four, five, six times a week. So your evenings are eaten up. And uh, as wonderful a theater is, nine out of ten shows are not good. 
actually. Um, and uh, so that can be, um, that, that can wear on you after a while. And I also sort of came to the revelation that while I liked theater very much, I didn't really care for theater culture. The whole culture that surrounded theater um, uh, wasn't exactly my cup of tea. And what was that? Were we talking about prima donnas here, or what's the story? Uh, pretty much uh, very theatrical people um, who sort of live and breathe the uh, industry and nothing else. Uh, so you'd get these invites and it'd be like, thou shalt join me for dinner at <laughs> half past or something. Or what would be the thing? I mean, what, what is a theatrical person? Oh, well, then I'll just get myself into trouble. I still write about That's theater. That's what we do here, There are certain kind of... Um, but, I mean, uh, are, I don't know, a bit of uh, histrionic uh, by how, you know, by half and uh, a little self-involved. Uh, are, are, I don't know. Are you really saying that they didn't share your drinking habits? Is that what you're <laughs> referring to? <laughs> no, they, actually, they didn't share my drinking habits and... Um, that that was a surprise. Uh, I mean, anyone who enters the theater um, has a romantic vision of it, basically fed to them from old movies and television shows. And you you picture people who are constantly in evening dress, you know, drinking martinis. You know, it's it's Noel Coward, um, but it's not like that at all. Uh, it's uh, it's funny. A actors, you know, they they're so beautiful on stage, you know, and they wear these wonderful costumes. But uh, almost to a man, they, they dress like schlubs outside of the theater. And as far as drinking is concerned, um, no, it's, it's beer. It's vodka. Um, I didn't know martinis, no Manhattans, nothing special like that. Um, but anyway, that was, yeah, that was a, a revelation at the beginning. It's also the same with journalists. A, uh, a journalist in general, have a reputation as being heavy drinkers, but basically that reputation is outdated. Uh, there haven't been heavy drinking uh, journalists since the 60s. Uh, in fact, that probably wouldn't even be allowed. Um, stories I've heard even at the August uh, New York Times is that there were heavy drinkers there who would just like fall asleep in their desk and, you know, have a bottle in the, in the, in the drawer of their desk. Um, that would not be tolerated today. <laughs> And indeed, I am sure there is no one, no one in that building who, <laughs> who has a bottle in their desk. They're absolutely squeaky clean. I think they save that for the bloggers now. Like the, <laughs> the blogging industry is rife with drunkards. Yeah, but then you're basically drinking alone, aren't you? Right. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just really sad. <laughs> drunkards with the lights turned low. Yeah. No, there's no romance around a uh, a hard drinking blogger. <laughs> At least not now, you know, once, once it's turned into a uh, Sam Spade film, you know, Sam Spade, the blogger, then it'll all change. It'll be a mystique. You know? <sighs> so, uh, you made yourself into a, uh, a, a wine writer and how did that, how did that evolve? What happened there? Um, I, uh, was, I was interested in wine. Um, I, I grew up in a house where, uh, there was a good deal of drinking. Um, it wasn't parallel particularly discriminating, but uh, my parents were from the 50s, and there was the cocktail hour, and it was observed faithfully. And, uh, and then at dinner, there was wine. And also, I grew up in Wisconsin, which was, you know, I grew up in Milwaukee initially, and of course, beer capital of the world, at least back then. Um, and I had an uncle who was a beer distributor. So um, I guess I grew up with an interest in wine. I was always interested in wine. Um, but I didn't know a great deal about it, like most people. 
And so at a certain point, you know, in my 30s, I thought, well, um, if I want to learn about this, I, I better get started. You know, I mean, I, you can't put these things off forever. So I, uh, I looked around for some classes. I took some of those wine classes that are often uh, offered at liquor stores or wine stores in your neighborhood. How'd that work out for you? Uh, uh, pretty badly. <laughs> I went with my wife for a few of those, and I won't say where I did them, although they were in Brooklyn. Um, but basically, you get it's it's basically a tasting. You uh, you weren't learning a lot. You weren't learning about the grapes. You weren't learning about the growing regions. You weren't learning about the vintners and how they differed from other ones. You're basically tasting wine, and then, like, uh, the person who led the seminar would say, like, what would you eat this with? And uh, everybody would always say lamb. You know, they'd say, I see lamb. I see lamb with this. You know, it's like, uh, that became a joke between my wife and I. We still do it today. Whenever we drink any glass of wine, you say, I see lamb. Nice poly fumé. Yeah. <laughs> and so, like, and I was thinking, I'm not learning anything. So, I... Uh, I found out about the International Wine Center, the Wine and Spirits Trust, which is based out of London. And I was told that's in depth. And in fact, something that industry people take and some sommeliers start there and get a degree. And so I went there and I took the intermediate course, lasted 12 weeks. I took the advanced course, lasted another 12 weeks. And there I got the education that I wanted. It was so specific that, you know, for every um, growing region, every growing country, they brought in a new teacher. So there were experts on Spanish wine and experts on uh, German wine and uh, one person who just did Bordeaux. Um, and it was fascinating. And you got to taste wonderful wines because often the teachers brought in bottles from their private collection. So um, I took those and I, that's as far as I went because if I wanted to take another step, uh, it was basically um, sommelier path. You know, another two years and you would be a sommelier. And as much as I love sommeliers and as much as I think that's an exciting and interesting job, I didn't want to become one. I already had a job. I was a journalist. But you did meet a number of sommeliers in, in the journalist field because you were doing the, the In the Cellar for The Sun. Yeah. The first paper that allowed me to write about wine was The New York Sun, which lasted all of five years. And uh, there were two good things about The Sun. They had uh, good arts coverage and they had good food and wine coverage. And um, they were... Um, generous enough or dumb enough to give me a wine column, even though I had never written about wine before. At that point, I was just writing about theater and the arts for them. And uh, so I did it. Yeah, so I did it for like two or three years. It was called In the Cellar, and uh, that's exactly what it was. I visited uh, restaurants that had really good uh, um, wine programs and talked with the sommelier and went into their cellar. And the articles were... They were about the sommelier's philosophy, and they were about the focus of the uh, of the wine list at the restaurant. But I also tried to work in anything unusual about the physical space. Um, and uh, every every cellar at every restaurant was different. Because I think you're pretty good about doing that, like painting some atmosphere into the piece. Because mm -hmm. when you did the uh, beer at series for Eater, I felt like that also really, you know, you felt like you were you were there. You got a sense of what this place looked like and who was there. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think that's probably my strength, the, the bigger picture, painting um, painting a picture, um, trying to profile characters. Uh, there are plenty of people out there who know more about how wine is made and how spirits are made and things like that. You know, the technical nuts and bolts stuff. Um, I just always take a, a step or two back and try to capture the whole thing. Do you think that uh, comes out of the theater background? You're like, it may. enter stage left. <laughs> you, know? Uh, I, you know, I never thought about that. 
That's, that's interesting. Um, probably because if you're writing about theater, you're constantly having to capture characters. You're constantly telling stories because you're bombarded by characters all the time. You know, it's like uh, actors, directors, playwrights, they can't help but be characters. And, uh, and of course, they're telling stories on stage. Because if the dialogue in a, in a play is about, you know, some subject, you usually don't, like say it's about Freud and it's psychoanalysis, you don't like do a piece on psychoanalysis. <laughs> You know, you do a piece on the play and mm-hmm. and what you know how the decor was and right, right. the costumes and how this guy's performance was that kind of stuff. And like you don't actually do what he's saying. You know what I mean? If it's a subject matter based, I mean, you might talk about it if, he, if it's like David Bamet where he's got like a certain way of talking or mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. like that. But you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, the the uh, the column you mentioned at Eater a beer at was my idea, and. Uh, you know, I guess that's reflective of that attitude, too, because I just, I like to go to different bars, even if only for one time, see what the personality of that bar is, see what the character of the regulars are. Um, that's, that's, that's the story I like. I mean, I, what else am I going to write about their beer selection? I mean, often, you know, right. it's like they, they have Bud. <laughs> A you know, they have Coors Light. <laughs> guess what? It's an Irish pub. They, they serve Guinness. Right, You right. know, so, so you that have was to. Jameson. Yeah. <laughs> I was Jameson and people drank it. Um, uh, so you have to go beyond that and you have to find a story beyond that. And uh, believe me, often in that column, it was very hard to find the story behind the, beyond that. I had to stay in the bar a long time to find out what's different about this bar. <laughs> uh, when I was lucky, it eventually emerged. Sometimes it didn't emerge at all. Like, Sometimes the bar was just boring. Chalk it up to another basic <laughs> Irish bar. Is that? Yeah, basic Irish bar. I. I I grew to uh, really get tired of Irish bars by the end of that column because uh, there are more of that kind of bar in the city than any other kind of bar. And I think they all get their decor from the same warehouse in Staten Island. You know, it's like, here's the map of Ireland, you know, and here's the uh, whatever the mirrored harp poster, you know, where you can see your reflection. But it's, oh, it's the harp logo, you know, and uh, what else do they usually have? Sometimes they have like Irish playwrights. Sometimes uh, Irish resistance heroes, Irish sports figures, uh, a little bit of Ireland, you know. Because it's like uh, it's kind of like that thing where the French people all get their baguette from the same bakery. Mm-hmm. Like it's, there's a giant bakery that makes baguettes and then ships them out to smaller bakeries, and right. everyone actually eats the same baguette. Yeah, you know, it's kind of <laughs> like that. It's kind of when you learn that you're like, oh, that's a bummer. You mean this Irish bar is the same as that Irish bar? Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> so yeah, it's, I mean. But you'd find things like there was a bar out in, uh, was it in Greenpoint called Molly O's? And they actually only served one thing, a Coors Light. Just Coors Light. You know, just it's like, Coors Light. That's the only bar that I found that only served one one beer. Because even that that place in the village serves like dark or light, right? Oh, McSorley's. Yeah. They have yes. like two McSorley's. You know, they serve their own ale. Right. Yeah. I love places like that. Um, I mean, you could obviously... Obviously, books have been written about McSorley's because everything's unique about that. But I love places like that that have their own way of serving that makes no sense. And if you don't know how they do things, you look like a fool. Like, like every day, you know, hundreds of people go into McSorley's and they say, you know, what kind of beer do you have? And it's just like, right, right, right. dark and light. Right. And then they order it and they get two mugs. And they said, no, I wanted one. Right. And you know, it's just like, it just, I love it. It's hilarious. It's like leaving Katz's <laughs> Deli with the... You know, without having the ticket, and mm-hmm. they freak on you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, Katz's Deli is another place. Yeah. Uh, there's an Italian restaurant in um, Murray Hill called uh, Marquis that only has one menu. 
So you go in and you have the same meal every day. You know, it hasn't changed for 70 years. But have places like that become lesser or more in the time that you've been in oh, New York since the Less and less, less and less. It, idiosyncrasy is on its way out. And do you think that in some ways you've found yourself chronicling what's left of that? Um, well, do you mean like as a wine spirits writer or yeah, just as a writer? Like finding a way to say like, you know, not so many big sellers anymore, like this one in 21 club. Or, uh -huh. you know, like, oh, hey, not so many bars like this anymore that do it yeah, like that. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the, the, the old sellers were, were unique. I mean, they were mainly new sellers. I mean, uh, but sometimes the new sellers were interesting. Like uh, when I went to Babo, um, they had actually, they had a basement that was like maybe six feet tall. You could, you had to crouch in order to get into it. And they actually excavated and they, they went underground and they built it out. And so they made something interesting out of that. But places like 21, you know, where, have, have you been to 21? I've just walked by. Um, they have the last uh, speakeasy seller in the city. You go downstairs and there's a, a door that's two feet wide and it has a little hole in it and you stick a wire through the hole and it clicks a little lock and it opens up. And um, because they were a speakeasy, that's where they hit the booze. And uh, so, I mean, that that's unique. That doesn't exist anymore. And so I, I, well, I guess what we didn't hit on was you were doing the wine thing. Yes. And you were writing for The Sun. Mm -hmm. Somiers, and then what happened to get you into the bar world? Well, I was just kind of juggling both, and uh, one of the best things that happened to me, I was I was working for a particular theater magazine, and I got fired, and uh, it actually opened a door. It said, "Okay, well, if I want to change careers, if I want to change focus, this is actually the opportunity, and probably the last time. You know, I'm getting on in years. This will be the last time that I can do it." And I was really enjoying writing about wine, and I had started to write about spirits. So I said to myself, while I will keep a toe in theater, this, this will be my, uh, my forte from now on. Uh, I started writing about spirits because I visited a convention called Tales of the Cocktail down in New Orleans in 2006. At that point, uh, I think it was only about three years old. And some people knew about it, but most people didn't. I certainly didn't. How did you hear about it? Uh, I was sent by the New York Times to cover a pop-up cafe, an Ely cafe out of Trieste in Soho. And um, they set up this cafe, which kind of looked like an art gallery. It had sculptures made out of Ely cups. Um, there was a play put on, uh, you know, the writer David Rosengarten? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He actually wrote a little play about the history of coffee for them. And so I attended this coffee and I wrote a, you know, a little amusing article for the Times, like, there's a play about coffee in Soho. You should go see is it that, because this is totally weird. Is that why they sent Robert Simonson, like, ex-theater? Yeah, exactly. To, like, mm -hmm. Yeah, the two worlds, you know, <laughs> yeah. cross there a little bit. Um, and, I, I, and I love coffee. So I was there and there was a woman there named Ann Rogers from the South, uh, from New Orleans. And she said, uh, I run a little cocktail convention in New Orleans every year, you should come. And the idea of a cocktail convention, you know, it's like, you, that gets your attention. You're like, what? <laughs> Such a thing exists? So, so could, much better I, than the insurance industry convention I yeah. scheduled for that week. <laughs> and um, so she invited me and uh, I went, uh, number one, because I'd never seen New Orleans and it's one of the cities I had longed to see. 
And number two, because it was a cocktail convention and I had to see what that was. So what did you see when you went? Well, I went, um, I don't know, I don't know if there are cities like this for you, but there are some cities where you visit and it's so otherworldly that you can't believe what you're seeing as the taxi drives up to your hotel. Rome was like that for me when I first went, but going to New Orleans for the first time, it's another planet. It doesn't look like any other place in the United States. And so I was, that sort of put me in another universe immediately. And then I stayed at a hotel called the Hotel Monteleone, which is a very historic hotel down there. Uh, Tennessee Williams stayed there. Truman Capote liked to brag that he was born there, um, which wasn't true. Um, a beautiful old hotel. And I stepped in there and I was suddenly surrounded by cocktail people and spirits people. And they looked very different from wine people. Uh, they invariably wore hats. They had uh, Hawaiian shirts. There were a lot of tattoos. Um, and uh, they all had drinks in their hands. Um, and they were just, you know, talking in the lobby. People would, uh, and it's New Orleans, you know, you can drink in the streets. You can drink anywhere. And so you'd be like walking down the street or walking through the hotel and somebody would hand you a cocktail and just say, here you go, you know, try this. <laughs> Which, you know, doesn't happen like when you enter um, a wine bar or right, right, a restaurant. Right. You just like, you know, have some rosé. Right. It's like, so um, I just, uh, it opened my eyes to a new world. Uh, I, I, I like to say that it, you kind of just went down a rabbit hole um, and you didn't come up for like five days. And there's a wonderful bar in the Hotel Monteleone called the Carousel Bar which is just what it sounds like. It looks like a carousel and it spins round and round. It rotates every 15 minutes. So um, you get this little subtle feeling of motion. And uh, I, order, I saw people ordering Sazeracs, which is like, uh, I believe is the official drink of New Orleans. And I had never had a Sazerac. And so I ordered one. And um, I sat there at the carousel bar, rotating around, drinking and sipping my Sazerac, because it's a sipping drink. It's a drink that you sip over, you know, a course of time. And it was, a, a, I have to say that was like one of the revelatory moments in my entry into spirits and cocktails, because I thought to myself, this drink, this drink has existed for like more than a hundred years. And I've never had one until now. And it's absolutely delicious. And not delicious in, you know, thirst quenching or, gosh, that tastes great, but delicious in a way that as you drink it, you keep thinking about it and you want to know more about it and you want to know how it's made. And uh, they, they, they kind of had me hooked after that. And it seems like you were kind of hooked at somewhat of an earlier time for what would become a, a fairly substantial cocktail revival, you know, largely... I don't want to say centered in New York, but a lot happened in New York subsequently with cocktails since, say, 06. Um, uh, yeah, there were a few bars in New York at that point. There was the Flatiron Lounge. Uh, Pegu Club had only been open a year, but there certainly wasn't the deluge that came. And really, it was a little club. Um, there were maybe two dozen people in that world, in that cocktail world, who were real prominent figures. And they ran all the seminars, and they were the people who were always interviewed. Uh, now that's grown exponentially, where there are hundreds and hundreds of people in this industry, and not just in the industry, but actually significant, you know, with running important bars or writing books 
teaching seminars, teaching classes, and also uh, running uh, conventions. There, there must be, I don't know, about 15 cocktail conventions in the country at this point. Every city's got one. And what's that? What's that ride in the in the in that seat been like? I mean, um, as a writer covering the cocktail beat, you know, it's it's a it's a terribly fun beat, as you could imagine. Um, usually, in my in the past, in my past career, people will say, "Gosh, you you do this? That must be awesome." And then I, being a contrarian, I always come up with the reasons why it's not awesome first. Right. Right. Um, <laughs> Uh, but now I don't do that anymore. I mean, when people say, you write about drinking for a living, I'm like, that must be great. And I just say, yeah, <laughs> it is. I go to bars a lot. I talk to bartenders. Uh, bottles of booze come through the mail. <laughs> so it's fairly awesome. Um, so it's a good ride. Uh, one of the reasons that made it more has made it fun is because the people in it keep rediscovering what they're doing. Um, a thing that's different about the cocktail revolution as, a far, as, as opposed to the rebirth of wine consumption in America, which like started in the 70s and snowballed until we were a much more educated country as far as drinking wine, is that wine, while we weren't drinking very well, uh, it never went away. Nobody forgot about wine. It was still, uh, there were still wine lists at the better restaurants, and there were still people who really cared about it. And, and we're passionate about it. But cocktails really just went away. Uh, nobody talked about drinking cocktails in the 70s and 80s. Um, I mean, they, they knew what a cocktail was supposed to be. You know, your, your father or your grandfather drank a martini. And if you went to clubs, you would get something they called a cocktail, you know, something with sour mix in it and uh, fruit juices and Galliano, who, who knows what. Um, but as far as classic cocktails, as far as being a respected uh, segment of drinking, of the drinking world, it, it didn't exist. And so the people in this world, the bartenders and the mixologists, had to do a lot of research. They had to do a lot of digging. They had to bring things back. They, had to, they brought back classic recipes. Um, they rediscovered completely forgotten mixologists from the 19th century who had been influential back then, but hadn't been written about in decades. They had to bring back uh, ingredients that people had forgotten about and actually clamor to get ingredients made again. Like certain distillers had stopped making things because the cocktails they were used for were not called for anymore. So they just, you know, it's a business. So we stopped making that. People don't want that anymore. But then the bartender said, yeah, but if we don't have that, we can't make this. So start making that again. Um, so all these things contributed to a very exciting beat where there was always a story to write. There was always something to write. Not just a new bar opening, but a whole new style of drink being made. Like, for instance, cobblers, which were like the most popular drink in the United States from about the 1840s to the 1860s. And uh, a cobbler is like a julep, lots of little cobbled ice in it, and usually made with sherry. Uh, and so uh, you could write about that, or you could uh, you know, write about how absinthe has come back um, after having been gone for 90 years. That seemed to make a big impact on the market, absinthe. It did, it did. Um, like a, a lot of these waves, it hits a peak 
a real high peak right away. The moment it gets on the market, everyone's excited about it. And then you find out exactly how much people want this. <laughs> so um, the absinthe was the biggest story in that vein uh, because it was gone for 90 years and because it supposedly made you crazy it a lot of romance developed around it and of course there were all those paintings you know by Degas you know of the absinthe drinker in Paris you know it's like we got to have that back um and then it comes back and oh it it you know it tastes like licorice <laughs> and people say I don't know if I want to drink this all the time <laughs> And so then there's a rollback, you know, like where everybody's got to have absinthe. I mean, right after absinthe came back, there were absinthe bars. And then the absinthe bars closed. Um, and then you find out what's going to survive and uh, what was, you know, just interesting for a short period of time. I mean, not that I'm not saying that about absinthe. Absinthe is still here and there are two dozen brands out there. But I know people that right before absinthe came out... They were saying, you know, this is going to be the biggest thing since sliced bread. People are going to be drinking absinthe like they did in Paris in the 1890s, and that did not happen. But it, it actually took a lot of work on certain people's part to bring it back, right? Like mm -hmm. It was considered illegal for a while. Yes, um, there was a, it can be mainly credited to a man named Ted Bro, um, who I believe is from New Orleans. He became obsessed with the idea of absinthe, and he started seeking out old bottles. He found old bottles from before it was banned. It was banned sometime in the 19-teens. Um, and he started tasting it. And I, he, I don't want to misspeak. He may have a, an analytical background where he's able to, you know, break this down to its components. But he did run tests uh, to, to, to disprove the United States government's contention, which was on the law books, that it contained, that the distilled project contained an ingredient called thujone, which could affect your uh, mental capacity. Um, and uh, he, he proved that it was so uh, small, or not even there, that it was not true. And so uh, he opened the gateways for absinthe to be made and sold legally again. So yeah, I mean, he 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 went through a lot of effort, uh, but in many cases these are um, labors of passion. These people really want to do it. They, they 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 don't care how long it takes. And what are these people like? I mean, you saw theater people, you saw sommeliers, and then what's you know if you're to sum up, who are these people? Like uh, what seems to drive them, and what do they like to do in their spare time that's not dedicated towards bringing back recipes? Uh, you mean the people who are the distillers or the people in the industry? Uh, people in the industry who are working with distillers to bring back things. I mean, who are these people in New York that we see and what are they like? Um, well, they're just, uh, there's, they're, they're romantics to a certain ex degree. Um, the reason they want to bring back these ingredients is basically, in my opinion, because they want to bring back that era you know, where there was, I don't know, a little more sophistication, a little more, uh, uh, you know, uh, more of a spark to life where people dressed a certain way and comported them a certain way and, and seemed to, uh, like, know how to um, enjoy themselves, enjoy life. And so uh, I, I think it's, it's all part of a package. You, uh, you bring back a, uh, a world that doesn't exist anymore. Um, 
uh, and uh, going along with that is uh, the bartenders, um, you know, the, the cocktails, the glassware. I mean, if you, it's just a comparison of the bartenders we got now, you know, I mean, we make fun of them quite a lot, you know, with their handlebar mustaches and, uh, and uh, their arm garters and their vests. But uh, you can see how that might be attractive to someone who's, you know, seen a bartender in a, you know, a, uh, <laughs> um, I don't know, a stained polo shirt, you know, at the corner bar for for decades, and and um, so uh, that that's attractive to bring back. And what is the reality? I mean, you said, you know, then things roll out, they become very popular, then they settle into some sort of 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 of, of what's normal. Mm -hmm. what, what is the reality? I mean, how much can something break out? How much can things change? Can the world be altered? I mean, is there a sense that this is unstoppable? Uh, I mean, I see cocktail bars rolling out in Denver and Aspen and, well, you know, probably Wisconsin, Milwaukee. There's probably a really good cocktail bar there now. Uh, there is, is something that's going to keep going to the point where, you know, every person you meet is going to be a cocktail aficionado one day in America or no? Well, no, not everybody. I think it is going to continue to roll out and that and every city will have a number of good choices in that area. Um, and it's happening right now uh, at, at a very rapid pace. Uh, it's It came from just being um, where most of the great cocktail places were in San Francisco and New York. And now, you know, they're in Kansas City and they're in Atlanta. Uh, they're in Raleigh-Durham. They're in all these places. Um, that... Uh, would we get to a place where everyone's a cocktail aficionado? I I said I I hope not. <laughs> it would be a kind of a insufferable place to live. Um, the people who want to be cocktail aficionados will become. I mean, it does strike a, a spark with some people, and my experience has been that if that people are either immediately um, drawn into that world and interested, and then you know start buying books and making cocktails at home, or they're not interested at all, and they'll stick to their Jack and Coke. And you know, I mean, it takes all kinds to to make up a world. Uh, so, you know, it's it's impossible. It's just like uh, you know, wine. You know, there can be as much wonderful uh, wine from you know small producers and organic producers and biodynamic producers, but uh, there, you know, there are plenty of people who are just going to pick up their uh, gallon of a uh, gallo, you know, and they're going to be happy with that, and. Uh, yeah, no, and that's just fine. I mean, nobody nobody should wish that this should, you know, embrace the entire country. But um, that it's there now, that it's there as much as fine wine is, as much as craft beer is, is a good thing. And to me, it's like one of the missing pieces left in the puzzle, you know, of American eating and drinking. You know, it's like if you want to uh, eat and drink at the, at the top of the game, you know, that's possible, you can. And is it something that you think of as very American? I do, I do. It's, um, well, that's one of the things that you hear again and again from the people. And, uh, and one of the reasons uh, why I believe it is important uh, that, that cocktails be reclaimed because uh, Americans did invent it. Um, nobody disputes that. There's, there, there's like, there's nobody in France or England who's saying, you know, no, actually, we invented the cocktail and you stole it. Um, uh, like so many things that Americans have done in the past, we took what other people had invented and then 
did our own thing with it. So we, there were all these spirits, there were these liqueurs, there were these bitters. And, you know, we started just putting them all in the same glass. You know, it's just like, there, there's something new. We'll call it a cocktail. And, you know, and we like it. And then the rest of the world goes, hey, they took our stuff. <laughs> they, and they packaged it in a different way. And then they taste and go, well, maybe those Americans are on to something, you know, just, just like jazz or the American musical. You know, it's, it's uh, something that we uh, put our own personality stamp on. Have we seen cocktails change just in terms of ingredients lately? Not in terms of the rarity of the ingredients, but in how many ingredients are used. I feel like a lot I hear people say, like, oh, I don't want to use too many ingredients in my cocktail. You mean you're hearing from bartenders, yeah. I don't want too many ingredients? Yeah, there, there has been a shift back. Um, one of the problems with, oh, and just as a side note, probably more cocktails have been invented in the past decade than in any decade in the history of man. You'd have to go back to, like, the 1890s to, to find this level of invention. But the, the difficulty is that all the great combinations, the simple combinations of the three and four ingredients, long since invented. Um, so there are only two ways to invent a new cocktail that, that could be possibly good. One way is if a new ingredient is suddenly on the market. Like uh, seven years ago, there was an elderflower liqueur called St. Germain. And so all of a sudden, St. Germain was in everything because the mixologist could take that and say, I can actually invent something that was never invented before because this wasn't around. And, and the other way is to put a lot of ingredients into one glass. So seven or eight ingredients in order to achieve something that's completely different and original. Uh, but uh, there has been a shift back, I feel. Um, I mean, most uh, bartenders do respect the three-ingredient cocktail, the four-ingredient cocktail, the simplicity, they find a beauty in that. Um, and so they're kind of like pulling back, saying, yeah, enough of these complicated cocktails. Um, I mean, there's a place for them. You know, if, if, if a bar has come up with, you know, an eight-ingredient cocktail that is fantastic, by all means, they should make it. But chances are that cocktail is not going to become a classic. It's not going to be made at the bar down the street or in the bar the next town over because it's too complicated. And it's not going to be made at home. By your home bar, your home bartender, your home drinker, because you know it's you know you're not going to buy eight ingredients, so you can make something at home. So uh, there is a shift back to simplicity, but it's hard. It's hard. I, I mean, making a modern classic with three ingredients very very difficult. But have we seen uh, kind of the move away from the lone wolf, really good bartender, into kind of cocktail collectives at bars? Like it seems like it's it's gotten to the point where you can't just be really good on your own anymore because the bar level is so high for, hey, we need to have really special glassware and we need to have people who can uh, explain what this is and we need to have people who can flame that and we need to have uh, you know ingredients that are fresh and fresh juices and this has been cut. And is it no longer a one-man game? Like, is it really possible for one guy to just come in and be like, you know, I'm going to make world-class cocktails today? Or is it really, do you need to be in an atmosphere where, like a large wine program, there are several people involved in that? Um, I think perhaps, although... Um I would question slightly whether those lone wolves um, really were lone. Uh, I mean, there are, there are certain um, figures that made a name for themselves in the early 2000s. And it's tempting to think, you know, 
there's a game changer. There's a person who came along and changed everything. But they, they never worked alone. I mean, obviously, they're not tending bars seven days a week. They had a team. Um, for instance, uh, Sasha Petrasky, who started Milk and Honey and then did uh, Little Branch and other bars. Um, he had certain bartenders with him from the very beginning. And, and even though Sasha is more interested in the classics and not really interested in invention so much, some of those bartenders created uh, modern classics. Um, so uh, the, no, there, there are no one-man bands. You, you can't run a bar with one person. It's, 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 it's not like a restaurant where it's really the chef's voice. It's the chef's vision. Um, you you, you got to have a number of people behind the bar. And those personalities are important because people come to bars not just for the drinks, but for the personalities. And that personality that they come in may not be the owner, uh, may not be a partner, may just be some working stiff, but, you know, an essential piece of the puzzle of that bar. Uh, but uh, as another answer to that question, yeah, some of the bars that are being opened now, because there are so many significant figures in the industry, you can open a bar with like four people that are known known quantities and said like and so it looks like i don't know like a super group like you know it's like it's blind faith is open a bar <laughs> um a good example is that traveling wheelberries like, yeah <laughs> oh god yeah well i wouldn't call them a super group that's like an 80s version of a super group i mean the real super groups were in the late 60s early 70s um so like pouring ribbons is a good example of that you've got uh three bartenders who are working as bartenders in that bar regularly, who could easily be personality and force enough for one bar, but they're together. Um, and that makes a more attractive bar to go to. Uh, so um, there. So on the coverage side, we have seen major publications like the times, which you write for talk about these issues. It's not like it goes uh, under the radar and it's been embraced by, you know, thousands and thousands of readers because mm -hmm. but what was it like getting that conversation started was there always a desire amongst the publications to cover these things that were happening or did it take a little time to to lay that groundwork um as far as the time's concerned it wasn't difficult to get that going when i started writing for the dining section the editor was pete wells who is now the restaurant critic and pete was uh, an early um, aficionado of the cocktail renaissance. Um, he wrote some significant articles, like he wrote an early appraisal of Audrey Saunders, who opened Pegu Club. And so um, there, there was no convincing him. It was like preaching to the choir, you know, of course we're going to write about cocktails. And so uh, I had, I had uh, an open ear there. Um, and I've been lucky. I mean, the places that I've written for have wanted to do it, have wanted to do it. I mean, some of them are trade publications like Imbibe, and of course they want to do it. Um, I never tried to pitch like a cocktail story to the Daily News or New York Post or, or other publications who might be a little more skeptical, shall we say, of the movement or uh, you not know, take it as seriously. Um, and of course, today, everybody wants to write about it. Is it more broad-based in the sense that the buy-in is just less expensive than a lot of wines? Than the what is more? Uh, the buy-in. Like, you know, I might be paying $15 for my cocktail, but 
I can afford $15 as opposed to $75 for my bottle of wine. And, you know, $15 is still a lot of profit for a place that used to charge $8 for a cocktail. So, mm -hmm. you know, is the, is the buy-in low enough that the reach is just a lot broader? Um, possibly, though. Uh, my understanding from people in the business is that the profit margin on spirits and cocktails is very slim. It's hard to make money on that stuff. And you can make money on wine and beer much more easily. Um, from a customer point of view, you're right. You know, $15, $12, whatever, it's, it's a chunk of money. And there are always going to be people who object to that for one drink. Uh, but um, you can afford it. Give it a try. And uh, I, I would argue that these prices are legitimate, in my opinion, given the quality of the ingredients that are being put in that thing. Uh, you can still go to some fancy restaurants or, or high-end bars where a drink will cost, you know, $18, $20, and they put uh, junk in there. They put, like, old vermouth and uh, bottom-shelf gin. Um, but that's not happening at the best cocktail bars. Uh, and uh, certainly, from my point of view, uh, as, as a consumer, you know, it's like, I'll spend money on that cocktail, whereas... Even if, like, uh, a restaurant in New York that opens and gets praised by all the critics, uh, I might still not go there because it might cost me $120, and what if I have a bad experience? So, uh, from a culinary point of view, uh, a cocktail is an easy risk. What's the lifespan of a speakeasy? I mean, is that concept come and gone? Is it going to be here forever? Are we seeing different kinds of bars open up now? As far as new bars opening that are speakeasies, I think that era is gone. Um, the speakeasy concept was always weird to begin with because the whole idea is like they're aping a style of bar that existed during Prohibition. Uh, and indeed, there were secret bars all over the place during Prohibition, but they served, you know, crap. You know, <laughs> it was really, really bad liquor. And so today, a speakeasy is like a secret place that serves excellent cocktails. Doesn't make any sense. Um, so that was very cool for a while. What will happen is um, the iconic ones, like PDT down in the East Village and Bourbon and Branch in San Francisco, will stay on the way that something always stays on in every movement. You know, the way that, um, like, uh, you know, uh, French cuisine, you know, in New York in the 1940s and 50s, we still have a couple examples of that. You know, the La Grande you know, something stays on. But the others will uh, pass away or, or get rid of their speakeasy uh, aesthetic. Um, the movement now seems to be more towards open bars that, you know, are easy to spot, have a big sign. Anyone can come in, don't need reservations, and they still serve good drinks. Is the scope of history important to you when you approach the topic? I think more than any other cocktail writer I know, it seems like you look at things through the scope of, of, of the past, Yes, a lot of cocktail writers do that, but also the staying power of the future. So it feels like you're here to talk about, you know, what what is going to make a mark. Is that true, or is that? Yeah, no, I love I love history. I love history. Um, it's one of the reasons I live in New York because it's one of the few cities in the United States that has a living history um, that you can actually see and sometimes visit. Um, and uh, one of the reasons I like writing about spirits and cocktails, because these drinks and the liquors and some of the old bars have a story behind them, and it's fun to tell that story. 
Um, uh, and a, two of the things that entranced me immediately of the world of the the world when I went down to Tales of the Cocktails was I realized it was not just a drinking and not just quality drinking, um, but history. There was history attached to every damn thing, every seminar, every cocktail, every bartender I talked to. There was history. It was just a dripping in history. Um, and the other thing was ritual. I, 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 I really have an affection for ritual. And just the preparation of a cocktail has a wonderful ritual about it. Um, you know, wine is wonderful and I love wine, but the way you serve wine is you open the bottle and you pour it. You go to a bar and you say to a bartender, I want this cocktail. And he says, he reaches for this bottle. He reaches for that liqueur. He reaches for that bottle of bitters. He finds the right juice. He finds the right glass. He finds, you know, he, he has to get either uh, the mixing tin or the stirring glass. He's got to get the right spoon. It's The ritual just never ends. And so you get this uh, little show before you get your drink. And if you care about that sort of thing, you realize that the show is the same show that's been put on, perhaps, for like 150 years. Like with drinks like the Sazerac or the Old Fashioned, that preparation method has been going on forever. And uh, you get a little you get a little tickle of excitement, you know, if you're a history geek when you see that. Robert Simonson, who writes about spirits and cocktails for the New York Times as well as other publications, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.